everybody. I'm Leslie Manukian, president and founder of Health Freedom Defense Fund and the host of Conversations on Health Freedom. Today, our guest is Gabrielle Bauer. <laughs> Not Gabriel, like we say in the United States, Gabrielle Bauer. She is the author of a new book called Blindsight is 2020, which has been published by Brownstone Institute. I'm thrilled about that because Jeffrey Tucker is um, I think one of the most amazing people I know, and I'm thrilled that they've published this book for you. She is a Toronto health and medical writer with six national awards for health journalism. Gabrielle has written two other books, Tokyo My Everest, the co-winner of the Canada-Japan Book Prize, and Waltzing the Tango, shortlisted for the Edna Stabler Creative Nonfiction Prize. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I'm so happy to have you here and talk about your really, really um, fantastic new book, which I am part of the way through, not fully through. Um, but it is really compelling. Let me just tell you folks, this is this fantastic compilation of all these different thought leaders, um, some scientists, but lots of philosophers and ethicists and people like this, just big thinkers about the impact of COVID on us. But why don't I turn it over to you, Gabrielle, to tell us what the book's about and why you wrote the book rather than giving our viewers my take on it. Um, okay, so I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that it's not just scientists, epidemiologists, virologists, public health people that I compiled, but people from outside scientists. Um, I was especially interested in what philosophers had to say, bioethicists, economists, lawyers, I even have a comedian and a priest in there. And the reason for that was that um, there was this whole narrative that crept up that we should follow the science, follow the scientists, as though this pandemic were only a scientific phenomenon, which of course it isn't. It's a human phenomenon. It affects humans on so many levels, you know, mental health, social, economic, and everything. And all these other perspectives have been missing from the government responses to COVID. And they are every bit as important as the scientific perspective and, and needed and need to be at the table. I've always thought from the very beginning when I went and testified in front of our school board and I would submit comments that it was truly, um, it, it beggared belief that they were using children as human shields. That oh it was gosh. always all about, um, you know, we have to stop this at all costs. And I just thought, I, I don't understand this. How do we get here to a place where these people think, is it just, is it pure fear? Is that what's really going on? I mean, I do know a local um, county commissioner who literally didn't go outside. She had a young girl, didn't leave and go anywhere for two years. She would make her friend when she ran with her, if she did go outside, stay very, very far apart from her, literally. And she wouldn't take her kid to the playground and stuff. I mean, what yeah, do you think, whoever, whoever what causes exactly people to, what causes this kind of, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's kind of nuts. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, no, I mean, whoever manufactured the fear, and I guess it was a lot of different forces, they sure did a good job with it. Um, and what you said about human shields, I actually was just tweeting about that today. Um, to me, the idea of using children as human shields is, is just so repugnant, um, you know, on a very basic biological and moral level, like we older people are supposed to protect the children. And so that that's certainly one of the big issues uh, for me and one of the issues that I highlight in one uh, chapter of the book um, that features Lucy McBride and Jennifer Say, who you sure have heard lots about. I interviewed Jennifer months ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Why do you think, I mean, how did they get to that place where they actually thought that it was appropriate? It is fully repugnant, but how did they get to a place where they thought it was was somehow justifiable or appropriate to use children to protect adults? I don't understand. I've never heard of a um, a civilized, you know, supposedly civilized society doing this. Are you, have you heard of any, and how do you think we got there? Um, it's that's a, a hard question, and I've thought about these things deeply and a lot, and I don't really have answers. You know, I'm just I, I've compiled different people's answers and thoughts and added my own in the book. But you know, there, as I said, there's this whole narrative that crept up that distorted the facts. You know, that stated that this virus is really dangerous to everyone, that none of us is safe, and that we have to take corresponding action. And, and once this narrative was set in motion, it acquired a life of its own. And it was very difficult to dismantle because it sort of took root in the people as well. And it also became all tied to this idea of being a good person. You know, this, this narrative, both on social media and legacy media, that, well, if you're a good person, you will behave in such and such a way. And... I think that's pretty powerful. You know, I've talked to some young people about it, including my own children. And um, my daughter told me that in today's world, there's there's a lot of pressure on young people to be to be good. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in principle, but the interpretation of being good is is very much sort of to um, agree with the approved uh, narrative. You know. Yeah, well, of the- I think that there's a difference, right, between being genuinely good. It's interesting because I just wrote a substack and it's called um, Sick of Pharma, We Can Do Better. I think that's the subtitle on it. But basically, what I talk all about is how you had the whole Purdue Pharma, um, literally, racket that was going on, peddling these very dangerous narcotics to people as though they were supposedly safe and non-addictive or significantly less addictive than other narcotics. And you've had the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, convicted of, I think it's close to $38 billion now in um, in uh, penalties and settlements and fines that they've had to pay for fraud and other sorts and other um, transgressions in the last 25 years. And, um, and then you have the vaccine industry where the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act recognizes that vaccines injure and kill some children. And it put in place a liability shield for the vaccine makers so that they are not, um, you can't, it's almost impossible to hold them financially or legally liable. And it's created this really bizarre situation where um, the pharmaceutical industry has this just extraordinary amount of power and influence in our country. And it's, it's not right. And I think this is part of it, you know, that that what I ultimately wrote in my blog was all about how there's all this stuff going on. And so all I can do every day is try and be good. But I don't mean good in a virtue signaling kind of a way. Right. I mean, in an ethical, principled, honest, decent, kind kind of way. And I think this is the real crux of the issue is that people have been through technology, through big tech, social media and other platforms kind of, shall we say, guided into behaving virtuously, even if they don't feel it, right? All the kids who apply to colleges today, they try and fill their um, their resumes and their applications with all of their volunteer work, <laughs> yeah, right? It's, just, yeah, it's like true. there's so much pressure on them to do this. So 
it's it's very interesting. So let me just ask you something, Gabrielle. Did you, um, your book is kind of a tale of you you um you kind of outline it as a tale of two sides up front in the in the first chapter of the book. But then what you do is you really unpack what side B is, what you call um, side B, and that those are all those who challenge the mainstream narrative. And what I'm really wondering is, are have you been um, <laughs> siloed into the health freedom movement for having written this book? Do you feel like you're part of the health freedom movement for having um, given voice to those who are contradicting or challenging the mainstream narrative? You know, how do you see yourself? Um, well, I don't, I, I definitely see myself as more on side B, but I don't fall neatly into one camp um, because I started out, um, I didn't have any objections to the vaccines. And at the very beginning, I didn't even have any objections to the mandates because initially I saw them as similar to school mandates. And it, it just wasn't a burning issue for me personally. Um, but then as actually, as I researched the book and, and um, interviewed some bioethicists for the book, and as time went on and, and as the vaccine coercion became crazier and crazier, um, you know, I modulated my point of view and I came to really oppose the mandates, uh, you know, more than the vaccines themselves, although the va vaccines obviously um, overpromised and underdelivered greatly. Uh, but I did come to very clearly oppose the mandates. Um, Do you oppose all mandates now? Um, vaccine mandates? You I do know that in Canada, children can easily get out of them. It's well, not... Yeah, that that was the that was the issue is that other man you know I came to see as as bioethicists talk to me that with other mandates there are easy outs the mandates just function as a um you know kind of baseline opt-in people are expected to opt in but if you want to opt out you can sign a form or whatever but in this case with the COVID vaccines people's livelihoods and jobs and standing in society depended on taking the vaccine. Um, even with a smallpox vaccine, when there was a mandate, there was never anything approaching this level of coercion. So I really came to understand the difference. And also I have um, lots of friends who are not vaccinated since there's obviously an overlap uh, between people who oppose lockdowns, my, my initial tribe, and uh, those who chose not to get vaccinated. So as I had conversations with these people and, and with experts in, in ethics, I you know, came to refine my point of view, I suppose. Um, and interestingly, you know, you asked me, you know, where I see myself and how it's influenced where I land. Yes, I see myself on side B and um, I have talked fairly openly to people in my field. Being a medical writer, I deal with pharma um, not usually directly, but some of my, you know, ultimate clients are pharma companies. Um, but I have talked to my clients, those who hire me, about my position. And so far, I haven't lost any of them. And some of them have even bought the book to my, you know, some of them with quite different opinions from mine have bought the book. So, uh, of course, it's easy for me to say I don't consider myself a big hero for doing that. I mean, I no longer have small children at home to support. And, you know, if if I were in a different and more precarious situation, I might not have had the courage to do that. So I, you know, I'm not blaming anyone um, for their choices. I'm just saying that I think there is value in, you know, in taking steps to talk about these things, even to people who we fear may um, disapprove. 
Yeah. And so, so far it's proven fine. Well, at this point, well, for me, I mean, I've been fighting against mandates for close to 20 years now, because I think that if anyone has the power or the authority or claims it to tell you what to put in your body, then you don't live in a free or just country. And the West professes to be about freedom and democracy and um, any government or business or school that can force you to put something into your body or child or your child's body is authoritarian in my view. And I think mm-hmm. that mandates are prima facie just wrongheaded. They are mm-hmm. absolutely abhorrent to me mm-hmm. because I don't think that no one, that anyone else has any idea. Um, well, no one else is responsible for you if and when you have an adverse reaction to a medication or a vaccine. And no one else knows your health, your medical background, or is able to actually assess what's best for you or your children. And the other thing is, we now know, I mean, for those of us who've been in the vaccine safety arena for a long time, it's not a surprise to us, but millions of people have woken up to the fact that just because government says something doesn't make it true. (laughs) And just because government says that the COVID shots are safe and efficacious doesn't make it true. And you know what? They've been saying the same thing about all these other shots for decades, and it's not true. Maybe not on the magnitude, that we see in COVID shots, but perhaps one of the reasons for that is because the COVID shots have been given to millions of adults who can actually tell you what's going on. Whereas when you give them to newborn babies, two, four, and six-month-old babies, they can't tell you what happened to them. They can't articulate it, and you don't know your baby that well um, because you haven't had them very long. And so to me, the whole idea of a mandate is wrong. If people want to voluntarily choose to use a medical intervention, then that's their choice, but they should be able to do so based on voluntary prior informed consent, which necessitates that we know what the actual side effects are. And we don't know because government media and the pharmaceutical industry lied to us. So I I am a major, major issue with it. So just so you know, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I ultimately agree with you. You know, again, the, this whole all these COVID measures, including the vaccine mandates, have, have forced a lot of us to think deeply about these issues and come to the conclusion that some things are just wrong. And all these collective good arguments don't negate the fact that in a free society, you just don't do certain things. Exactly. So this is the silver lining for me in COVID is, you know, I have I made an award winning documentary film on vaccines called The Greater Good. Uh, 15, gosh, how many years? 12 years ago now it came out. Mm-hmm. And um you know, I've been been trying to educate people about the reason why mandates and exemptions are wrong, because what give, government giveth, government can take away. And so I oppose all of them. And, right. mm-hmm. you know, anyway, my point is that in the last three years, people have actually seen for themselves what I've been talking about for almost 20 years. And that is that um, government should not and cannot be trusted with our health and well-being. That's the bottom mm-hmm. line. But yeah, no, let's get back I, to your I, book. <laughs> no, but I, I fully, I fully agree with you. Again, there are certain basic principles that are not suitable for a free society, and um, and again, I think this whole idea of collective good has been used like a bludgeon, you know. And I talk about that in the book. I mean, we could we could argue that well, it's for the collective good that I donate my kidney to someone because that person's going to benefit more than I suffer from just having one kidney. And why couldn't governments mandate that? It's really no different. So How about giving blood. Yeah, exactly. Organ doning. Exactly. Yes. Organ yeah. donation, forced blood, um, forced genetics, you know, donations, all sorts of things. I mean, who knows what they'll do. Right. 
Once you start using that collective good argument, yeah. you can really go anywhere with it. And, and I fully agree with you. Yeah. But as I say, in, in my case, there was an evolution of my thinking, which which I think is good, which is which is a good thing. Yes. Um, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> to the dark side we're, right? we're glad to have you amongst us yeah. Um, yeah i mean i just think utilitarianism is one of the most evil ideas ever conceived by human beings and for our viewers who don't know what it is it's the idea that it's okay to sacrifice some in service to the collective to the greater good to the many and i think that's sick frankly you know yeah 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 that's uh yeah, Phil, that's been so interesting for me also, just delving into the whole philosophical basis of the COVID response. So tell us about that, because you don't just um, share, uh, you know, contributions from scientists and people like this, but you do from philosophers. So help us understand how and why you chose the, the authors that you did include in the book. Um, well, one big philosopher sort of on our side, on side B, is Giorgio Agamben the Italian philosopher who emerged early in the pandemic um, to talk about his problem with what was going on. And I think a lot of us on, on side B just felt this, this instinctive recoil at the, the worldview that underpinned the COVID response, which, you know, Agamben and I might, might say just this, very narrow view and preserving metabolic life from this one disease and not considering safeguarding what makes life worth living in the first place. Um, you know, he, he talks about in his philosophy about bare life versus full life versus living. And there was this disproportionate and really unsettling emphasis on bare life. And it, again, I don't know why. I think some of us just really recoiled against that and really understood, you know, what was missing in that worldview. And, um, but it was a shock to me, as I imagine it was to you and to many others, it was a shock to me to realize that my perspective on this was not shared by all my friends, because I had no idea that my views were different from the norm mm -hmm. when it came to the balance between, you know, safety and freedom and all these issues. Um, and so to discover that I was actually an outlier, that was that was really surprising. It took me, you know, a couple of months to even begin to wrap my head around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I um, <laughs> um, I as soon as it started, I knew what was going on and where they were headed mm -hmm. because. I've been doing all this research for 20 years and I didn't think it was just a, an accident that they put into place the. Um, legislation that they did in 2001 that allows state governors in the United States and state health departments to um, grab extraordinary power in the event of a public health emergency. I don't think that was an accident. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are all these other things that they've put in place in the last 20 years. So as soon as 2020 rolled around, I was um, very much um, on high alert about what was going on. And pleading with anybody and everybody I could to take a step back and really consider the measures that they were attempting to implement because I didn't think it was uh, science-based or for, or truly for public health, but mm -hmm. 
So and what what kind of resp- response did you get when you you know signaled that? Well, one of my um, very dear friends hung up the phone on me. <laughs> he had a um, he's he has a, a position of um, a certain amount of authority, being an elected official, and so he was very very upset with me. But he came along through the months, and um, there you know certain people like that, and then m- many people by I'd say April, May, and June of 2020 started calling me up and saying, Les, what's really happening? What is really going on? This can't be. And so I'd say, you really want to know? Come on over. And then I would have a long conversation with them, explain to them what I thought was really happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And it's nice that after three years, slowly, 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 some of the stuff is getting exposed, like in the lockdown files in the UK and the Twitter files. Um, I, you know, I, I I don't consider myself what they call a conspiracy theorist. I, I don't subscribe to the belief that every part of this was planned. Um, it's just a bit of a stretch for me, you mm-hmm. know, that, but there were certainly, you know, a lot of malfeasance that occurred along the way. And, um, you know, as the saying goes, don't let a crisis go to waste. So I think that the powers that be certainly um, capitalized on the situation. Um, I don't really comment on, on things like the origin of the virus because other people are more knowledgeable about it than I am. Yeah. Um, and my primary area of interest was always sort of the the psychology of the whole thing, the philosophy of the whole thing, the ethics. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's, that's what I focus on. Well, since you brought it up, I wasn't going to until much later in the interview, but I would love to talk about it because you actually write in the first chapter of the book <clears throat> that you, um, you know, that you don't address whether or not the responses were premeditated. <clears throat> um, but what I wanted to ask is, is that just to be polite or is there another reason? And the reason I ask this is because it's, I mean, the UK had a nudge committee to try and push the public to act in a certain way, to behave. And, no, no, I, I write about and that. media and technology and intelligence, they all acted in concert. They, you know, conspired to deceive the public about um, the true risks and about what those who were skeptical of the official narrative were saying. And I feel like that's just not possible that that was just an accident or just um, an oversight or a little no, bit of no, malfeasance. I mean, that was coordinated I, I... action. Well, absolutely. And I actually write about that in chapter two, which is devoted to Laura Dodsworth um, and okay. who wrote A State of Fear. I write precisely about what you said, about the whole nudge unit, about the deliberate um, you know, government uh, um, move to, to sort of keep the public fearful. But that's not the same as, say, um, supposing that the pandemic itself was planned. And also, again, and I completely disagree with what the government did, 100%, but I know that the governments can justify that to themselves by saying, well, we needed to stoke fear in order to get the public to comply and then in order to control this threat. So I guess I I see it as malfeasance, absolutely, but not. I don't see it in the same category as actually manufacturing the whole pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's where I sort of you know, reach reach a question mark. And I don't feel that, you know, I have the the authority really to um, to weigh in on that. And also because opinion about that is changing constantly as more research is getting done. Sure. Um, you know, like every book, I think there's there's room for a lot of books about the pandemic. And I think every book, not every book has to cover everything. I think it's 
uh, every book has its focus, you know, and um, and mine focused on the the psychology and the philosophy and the ethics of the response. But uh, no, I completely agree with you. It was I'm completely 100% opposed to governments stoking fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but I think they to... were they they could justify it to themselves that they were doing it for a greater good. I mean, this it is, is never good. justified for government to try and frighten the public. I mean. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. Maybe they can somehow rationalize that in their own um, literally twisted psyches. But I mean, that's Mm. sick. Is uh, Mm. there's only one way to portray that? Um, Absolutely. So you talked about um, your kind of journey with respect to the the vaccine and the mandates. Um, Tell us about your journey with the lockdowns. You know, they came first. So what was your kind of experience in your journey through that? Um, while I was in Brazil, when it all started, I was visiting friends that I had made a couple of uh, years earlier because I lived for five months in Brazil and, you know, had the most amazing experience in, in 2018 and made all these wonderful friends, learned the language. And so I went down in like early March 2020 to visit them all. And then, you know, pretty much as soon as I got there, the lockdown started. So at first I was just focused on, you know, what do I do? I had a friend who's very alternative and she offered to sort of put me up for a month with her rabbits and dogs and cats and assorted pets. And it was very tempting, but, you know, I didn't want to leave my husband alone here. And, um, you know, Trudeau, our prime minister in Canada was telling everyone to come home, come home. And, you know, my husband was really concerned and wanted me to come home. So eventually I, I just, you know, went to the airport and I had to wait 48 hours in Sao Paulo to get a, take it back home because it was just complete confusion with everyone wanted, wanting to return. I finally made it back home. And then the first thing when I stepped into the house, my husband, you know, greets me with his hand outstretched six feet. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I say this smiling, like he, he was not a bad guy. Like he was very worried at first, but I will come to that later. He never shamed me or anything like that for my opinion, but it was still a shock when I got home. It was just, okay going out of the basement, you're quarantining. You know, he was very happy to see me and all that. And so there I was in the basement for literally 14 days. You know, I had my computer uh, every once in a while when, you know, he would go upstairs to the bedroom and then I'd come to the kitchen and get something to eat. And instinctively from the very, very first day of lockdowns, from the first hour when I heard about it, something very deep inside me just said, no, this is not right. Uh, I tried to talk myself out of it. You know, I describe in the book how I even, you know, for a few hours, I put the stay home, save lives banner under my Facebook picture. But it just felt so inauthentic that it came down after a few hours. No. And, you know, for the first few weeks, I, I just just cogitating about all this, like, what is wrong with me? Why is everyone supporting this? And I am not, you know, and this is this is what started the whole thing that ultimately led to the book. Um, trying to figure out what it was you know I I really I literally I I consulted a therapist on zoom to try to figure all this out and I I talk about that experience in the book too I haven't Um, gotten there yet (laughs) oh yeah well and we talked about philosophy and you know utilitarianism versus deontology and all these things it was pretty cool because although he was he was a psychiatrist actually but we spent most of the time talking about philosophy and again he was much more mainstream in terms of his views about the pandemic he was more afraid than I was, even though we're about the same age. I mean, I'm 66 now, so I was 63 when all this began. 
supposedly at an age where I should want to be, you know, protected and all that. But no, I wanted none of that, not from the government in the form that it was coming. Uh, but yeah, so it took me a few weeks before I started to have the courage to actually voice my um, discomfort with what was going on. And, but I did because it just, I felt so isolated in the beginning. Cause even, you know, as I say, my husband was supportive and, and he would listen to me, but he didn't really, he wasn't feeling any of what I was feeling at the beginning. And um, my kids did more, but they weren't living with us. And so I really felt a very strong need to reach out and find my tribe. And mm-hmm. so I started with, um, well, I joined a Reddit group called Lockdown Skepticism, which eventually grew to 56,000. Still operating now, still active, not as active as in the peak, but I became a moderator. Got to know many people through that group. And um, we invited a lot of people who turned out to be big COVID heroes to do AMAs, right? Ask Me Anything, Q&A sessions like Jay Bhattacharya, Malton Kaldorf, Sunetra Gupta, Vinay Prasad, um, a lot of these people. Um, we invited. And so I got to meet them personally on Zoom and as a moderator, you know, have discussions uh, with them while they were answering um, members' questions. And that was great. And then in this Reddit group, since it was so large, over 50,000 people, some of them were from Toronto. So I kind of asked them here and there if they'd be interested in forming a, a Toronto group. And there was interest. So we started a group called QLIT, Questioning Lockdowns in Toronto. And um, started with just six people. We had a meeting in a park in September 2020. And then it grew and grew and grew to more than 100 people. And um, we had, you know, we met up for for socializing. We went to some protests together. And here's someone who had never been to a protest before. So that was really interesting, you know, because there was always that fear. Oh, my God, you know, what if my client is here on the sidelines? And, you know, those those natural fears. but you know, I dealt with them. And so we went to, we went to several protests together. And, you know, I, I report one of those in the book, the experience of going to a freedom, freedom protest. And um, we also supported each other online. We had a WhatsApp chat that never slept. I mean, at its height, that chat would get literally 1000 messages per day, any time you, you know, three o'clock in the morning, if I looked at my phone, people were chatting. So that attests to the great need mm. that we had for this kind of support because all of us felt so isolated all of us were in a minority the minority was larger than we thought but it was still a minority so much so yeah you know um have you ever been hypnotized no have you ever been has anyone ever attempted to hypnotize you like i've had when i was in grade school and in middle school they would have you know hypnotists come and show how you can Ah, your arm out or whatever yeah, I, have, I went to one of those one of those shows, you know, where I can't remember his name, but one of these big hypnotists, you know, in a in a very big theater attempting to hypnotize people. And no, I, I don't think I was I was unhypnotizable. I, I don't know if that's too. where you're going. That's, but yeah. that's exactly why, because I think yeah. some of us are actually unhypnotizable. We are not so um mm. there's something in us that thinks for ourselves that that is not suggestible in the same way that some people are. And I think that maybe that's why, I don't know. Um, but even as a little kid, I, you know, mm. I, it wouldn't happen to me, you know? Yeah, um, I do. I do. I agree with you. I think that's part yeah. of it. Yeah. So in the, in the book, you portray the two sides, sides, side A is all the mainstream, the media, 
the government and all this at side A, and you liken it to a um, a record album, an old vinyl album. I'm not far behind you for <laughs> <laughs> I'm 59. So oh. um, side A is all the good stuff, the kind of cool and groovy hot pop stuff that might be on the you know radio. And side B is the stuff that's a little bit more um, maybe disjointed or quirky or something. Right. And so you are, you liken the the two sides of the COVID debate to that. The mainstream is, is side A and the, the challengers, the skeptics, the questioners are side B. And I'm wondering, um, do you genuinely think that there are two sides to this debate? I mean, do you think that there are, I know there are scientists and people who really believe what they believe, but mm-hmm. if you look at like the mask science literature, it was very clear that masks don't do what they are purported to do. And so Mm. I just really wonder, do you really think that there were two genuine sides to this all along? That's, that's a good question. And I've thought about this a lot. And I think compared to some of my very esteemed and appreciated colleagues at Brownstone, I'm a little less convinced that our side is just, you know, the correct side, and that's it. I think that the two sides, as as we've talked about earlier, just come from two different worldviews. And if you start with one worldview, you end up on one side. If you start with the other worldview, you end up on the other side. Now, obviously, I prefer, you know, my worldview. I, I just think it's more holistic. And, and But I do understand. And, and, and it's funny, Jeffrey Tucker of Brownstone has told me that, you know, one thing about me is that, you know, he sees that I understand the other side. So, you know, perhaps that's what, what led me to write the book, because I'm I'm also speaking to the people on the other side. I, I want them to understand our side a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I do. I don't agree with I mean, their worldview is kind of repugnant to me, but I do understand how the biomedical worldview where we are all kind of a, you know, just a collection of, of metabolic forces. And, and we, we really must try to preserve this a bag of bones, basically. Bag of bones. And, you know, so I don't agree, like I profoundly disagree with that. But I understand how if people view that as, as you know, the, the so primary you, consideration, what? they would end up on side A. So I kind of get it in a way. Even so though I would you would you just encapsulate the two worldviews as you see them? Um, well, it's it's um, what Agamben was talking about before. It's again the the biomedical worldview is that we are that metabolic life takes precedence over quality and meaning in life, and that any intervention that we think might help preserve metabolic life, even if it's just by a percent or two, like masking, you know, um, we should do it. You know, we can leave the costs for later. Right now, the priority is to keep us safe from this threat. So as I said, according to this worldview, any possible intervention, even if it's just a hypothetical benefit, if we think it might have a benefit, let's do it. So I would, that's how I would describe that worldview. Whereas the, you know, side B worldview is that, wait a minute, first of all, there's some basic principles like the one that you alluded to, bodily autonomy. Another one being, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. There's certain basic principles that don't just go away. 
in a pandemic. If they go away, then they're not principles. So, you know, do we actually abide by them or not? And we have to balance all these considerations. Um, yeah, so that, that's how I would differentiate the two worldviews. And that, uh, you know, and that, you know, life is not just, life doesn't only exist on, the, on this cold biomedical plane. Um, and there's no point in saving lives if, if we cancel living in the process. And that, that's sort of one of the um, sayings that I used a lot in 2020, we're canceling living to save lives. Yeah. And, you know, I could, even though I disagreed with it, I could put up with the idea of lockdowns for maybe a couple of weeks, just for people to get their bearings. But when it went on for in Canada, especially for months and months and months, and when some people said, as long as it takes, some of my friends, I remember this one friend, a writer who I kind of, who I liked and admired, um, you know, we had a disagreement about this online, where I complained about some of the actions that the Canadian government was taking. And she literally said, um, whatever the government asks me to do, I will do whatever it takes. Like she, she literally, I, I kept those words, you know, in, in my archives, in my personal archives, because I couldn't believe it. She said, as long as it takes, she said, life is different now. That's it. Wow. So, yeah. I, I, th I think uh, for me, I would distill the, I would encapsulate the two different worldviews as, uh, as spiritual in nature, in that those on side A, 10 and the biomedical ones tend to view um, this as all there is, that mm. we are simply a bag of bones. Um, they have a more materialistic kind of mechanistic view of life mm -hmm. and that this is all there is. And once it's over, it's over. And there's nothing bigger than us. There's nothing. Um, there's no grand plan. There's no God. There's no, you know, um, other source of all that is. And, and, and I think the people on the other side feel that there, there is actually something bigger than us, not all of them, but a lot of them. And if there's something bigger than us, then there's something else that should govern our actions and our deeds. You know, are we good and kind and moral and decent in everything we do? And, and the other thing is there's also just this idea that, you know, life is inherently risky. And I think that's much more a part of the people who have faith than the people who think that they can somehow control everything. And I just think, you know, that like kind of then verges into the the, the side A people verge into um, the transhumanist agenda and the whole notion of merging us with um, robotics. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's very, very dangerous. But to me, it's very much about this kind of reductionist view of life that it's nothing more than, you know, just your basic existence and that somehow your brain thinks all your thoughts, which I don't buy because, you know, when I meditate and I get into a very, very still state, I can actually see the separation between me, my consciousness and my thoughts. And it's not me thinking those thoughts, it's something else. And so, but aside from that, I mean, I've just, I've had many, many experiences that for me, um, inform my belief that there is something bigger than me. But the big issue is that if you don't believe there's anything bigger than us and life, then it's easy to tell other people what to do because you're answering to this realm rather than um, something bigger than us, you know? Yeah, well, I think that what you say, you know, I think it's, it's very true statistically that more people on side A, um, you know, have a more materialistic view and on side, side B have a more 
you know, perhaps holistic or spiritual view. But again, I don't think we can put people in boxes um, in, in this area more than anything, any more than in any other area. And, and take me, for example, I'm not a religious person. Um, when I consider sort of what's behind everything, I kind of, I can't go farther than I don't know. I just can't, you know, my, my brain cannot take me farther than I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay with that. But even though I don't have or, you know, believe I, I have any answers, I still just instinctively rejected that view, that that view of um, that preserving metabolic life is the highest good. <laughs> so, you know, I, it's I think we're complicated creatures and, and um, you know, we can't necessarily kind of divide us easily into groups um but yes i think i think worldview is behind the two sides i believed that from the beginning that it was a question of worldview Mm. um, that was really powering the psychology of the whole covid response yeah yes of course aided and abetted by governments who did the opposite of what they were supposed to do which is maintain calm instead they they fomented all this fear yeah So let's talk a little bit about this issue that we're sort of obliquely touching on, which is where do liberties belong in the middle of a pandemic? If there is, I mean, or a crisis, I would rather say, because I'm still not convinced that there was a pandemic. Right. right, Okay. I mean, we just did an article on Italy and it is very clear to me that cases and deaths were exaggerated by using a test. That's not an appropriate test. That Mm -hmm. deaths were exaggerated by, um, designating any and every death <laughs> yeah, as long no, as there I, was I presence agree. of a, a positive test. And so, um, you know, I have highly, I actually prefer to call it a crisis because I don't actually, I'm not convinced that there was a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, despite everything that people say, there was yeah. clearly a crisis of some sort. And I don't know what the origin was or what the reasons were for all that. But I think that there's, you know, listen, if there was a pandemic, then it was the cleverest virus that we've ever known because it knew that it was much more deadly in New York State, for instance, than in neighboring <laughs> states. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that there are certain singularities that occurred in Italy and New York City and maybe in Manaus, Brazil, that were not replicated later. So it in Bergamo, it Italy, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's right. In those three places, really, there was so there were some factors other than the virus that accounted for those singularities and uh you know by may it should have been clear to everyone and was clear to certain people who were watching that this was not the apocalyptic event that you know the early predictions had assured us it was um but um so what was your what was your original question? So I wanted this? to talk about you know individual liberties and oh yes yes I mean I'm I think the notion of collectivism is um, like I said about utilitarianism is is not only problematic, it's actually evil because it presupposes that someone else knows what's best for you. And I just think mm-hmm. that's inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just talk about liberties and collectivism and, and where you came to, because it sounds like, you know, I mean, you were in a perhaps different position early on and your, your um, thinking about this has really evolved, which I really applaud because the people who are so stuck, I just read an article. I don't know if you saw this, but it's crazy. There's an article this morning written by someone on Substack, and I forget who wrote it. Maybe it was Swig, David Swig. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah. he talks all, it's all about a Montessori school yes, that's I did read that. child-centered. 
Can I just tell people? So it's an yes. article about this Montessori school in upstate New York, near Ithaca, New York, and they are still masking the children. The children are still not allowed to speak when they have their masks off. They have silent lunch times and they mask on the playground still today, to this day. I mean, like I said, I never masked unless I had no choice and I never locked down and I never distanced and I never did anything. People would come to my house in March and April of 2020 and I would hug them and they would be like, oh, oh. Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. just unpack this for us. What do you think? Yeah. Your thoughts yeah. on liberties and collectivism? Oh, yeah. And if this, you know, where are you on this spectrum now too? Because you've shifted so much in your thinking. Well, I, I want to make it clear though that I, I shifted with respect to the vaccine mandates. With respect to the whole lockdown and the COVID culture and the masks, I was always completely on side B from the start. So there was no shift there. It was just a question of coming to understand, you know, why I felt the way I did, coming to read other people and sort of um, gain some philosophical insight into the into the roots of all this, and then eventually starting to write essays about it, and then the book. Um, but certainly, my instincts were right on side B from the start. And yes, freedom was a huge, huge issue. This idea, again, I think. Side A's position was that during a pandemic, you put all that aside. Freedoms don't matter until you deal with this threat. It just doesn't matter. And then side B says freedoms are fundamental principles of a free society. And if they are fundamental, well, they, you know, they have to be, um, they have to persist in some form, even in a pandemic. You can't just um, abandon them, jettison them. And, some might some might argue that they are inalienable rights, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, inalienable, inalienable again is kind of one of these terms. You know, where do they come from? You know, we could get into that, but I I do agree. If we have decided as a free society, society, that these are basic, fundamental rights in the society, then they don't just disappear in a pandemic. You know, and. And the whole idea of collectivism, I, I explore in one chapter that's devoted to Matthias Desmet, um, the Belgian uh, psychology professor who wrote a book about the origins of totalitarianism and who interpreted this whole COVID response as a form of mass hysteria, which he calls mass formation, which I largely agree with. And again, he talks about collectivism in this mass formation, people are not relating to each other. They are not voluntarily um, engaging in acts of altruism for other people. They're all just relating to this collective, to this mass, to this, you know, to these edicts from on high. So it's not really like, I think voluntary collectivism is great. That's just people helping each other. Um, but top-down collectivism does not work. Um, that is one of the conclusions that I reached. Um, because people are not all the same. They don't come with the same circumstances or needs or capabilities. And you're not going to get 8 billion people to agree on what the priorities in this kind of situation should be. And so eventually you're going to get divisions. And as we've seen, you get big, big divisions and expecting everyone to behave the same way, a one size fits all template uh, for managing a pandemic is going to exacerbate these divisions and is really going to um, break social cohesion. It just doesn't work. 
you know, eventually, sooner or later, people are going to rebel and say no. And um, and several of the people that I interviewed and, and talked about in the book address this issue that, you know, collectivism, so to speak, only works when it's ground up or when it's voluntary. Yeah. I think there's perhaps an even more um, insidious kind of component to this whole discussion, which is that just the idea that if there's an emergency or a crisis, then we have to do things. We have to change things. We It's, it's okay to suspend these fundamental freedoms. Well, <laughs> that creates a moral hazard by which it incentivizes government and the powers that be to actually create crises to take away our rights. And so I have a, you know, <laughs> a huge issue with all of this. If you like your friend who said, you know, I'll do whatever government asks, um, wow, just wow is all I can say to that. But <laughs> that creates a situation where government will ask for more. And that's a complete inversion of the of the role that government is supposed to fulfill, which is to serve us, not dictate to us. Absolutely. And I think also as, you know, in the zeitgeist, there's sort of more and more of a, certainly in the, the left-wing zeitgeist, there is more and more of, of this compulsion to create victim stories. And so there's always victims and victims, and therefore there's always going to be emergencies mm-hmm. that somehow, uh, you know, make things worse for these victims. And so everyone becomes a victim and everything becomes an emergency. So I completely agree um, that there is, you know, we're sort of moving towards what Agamben again calls the perpetual state of emergency. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be something and you can always manufacture something. And there's always going to be groups agitating for the next emergency. And there's also, as, as several people I talked to have mentioned, there is this tendency to conflate other emergencies or situations that, that are not public health with public health to call, you know, environmental emergencies or other kinds of social injustice emergencies to call them all public health. And then once you call it all public health, you can invoke public health health measures. Well, it's exactly what they're trying to do, right? With climate and all these other things. Yes, it's all it's all now public health. And that's what they Canterbury, England and Oxford, England, where they've got the 15 minute cities and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah we are flying very close to the sun. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and that's what they did with Black Lives Matter as well. They called it a public health emergency, which justified people going out en masse, you know, even though just weeks earlier, days earlier, we had been told this virus is so dangerous that we just must stay in our homes. Yeah. So, again, calling things public health, and this is not to diminish, you know, the the importance of certain political movements, but calling everything public health, again, just enables governments to activate those public health emergency mechanisms to take more power for sure. You know, you, all you have to do is look at the last 20 years to really um, see a perfect illustration of this because I was born in 1964. So you were born, I don't know, seven years years earlier, earlier. And um, um, from 1964 until 2002, to my knowledge, there was basically the swine flu outbreak in the United States. And there's some serious questions about the origin of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> the source of that, um, a military base. But let me just say, let's just take it at face value that you had that in a in a period from 1964, so 36 years, call it 38 years to 2002. And then you have SARS. You have SARS, avian, um, swine, Ebola, Zika, mm-hmm. MERS, 
what's going on here? All of a sudden, in a 20-year period, we've got scare after scare after scare about some viral outbreak that threatens um, you know, one corner of the globe, if not more. And I mean, I think that there's been a huge, mm. I think it's hard to discount that there has been an effort to frighten people with these supposed viruses and mm. get them to yield more of their uh, their rights and freedoms. So did yeah, you want to that's certain, No, no, that's certainly been the result. You know, again, it's, I, I can't really comment on how or to what degree it was planned, you know, whether a cabal of people were sort of sitting in a boardroom and planning all this, like, it's just, my mind doesn't tend to go there, but wherever and however it originated, yes, the result is that yeah. people are being frightened. And it's just interesting that you've seen this massive acceleration of that in the last 20 years, like all of a sudden mm-hmm. we've got all of these threats that we didn't have before. Why? I mean, that just seems crazy to me. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about something else you brought up in um, one of your emails, and that is the whole subtext of the debate about masks. Will you just tell us what your thoughts are on that? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's so funny. Um, I actually joined Twitter very late in the game. I joined on November 8th, um, the day of the midterms, the U.S. midterms. Um and the mask debates on Twitter are just enough to exhaust anybody. You know, masks work. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. Here's some data. Here's some data. Here's some data. It's, it just goes on and on and on and on. Now, I guess, and I wrote an article about it that was published by MedPage today. Um, again, I always believe that there's something underlying these things that is not the data. The data is a surface conversation. Mm-hmm. But there is something beneath it all again, and that's that's where it comes down to worldview. You know, th- there have been so many studies published now on masks that anyone can cherry pick a study that's going to support their point of view, and anyone can also interpret a study in a way that's going to point um, support their point of view. Like, for example, the uh, the Dan mask study or the Bangladesh study, the people who people used those same studies to either argue in favor of masks or against masks. Like people would say, oh, you know, an 11% reduction or whatever. And then the other side would say 11% reduction is nothing. On and on and on and on. But again, I think, you know, and in this article, I talked about how it really boils down to the kind of world that we want to live in. The people who support masks want to live in a world where they feel they have maximum control and where they feel that they can control others to to some degree and it just makes them feel safer and the people who oppose masks ultimately don't want a masked world even if masks do have an incremental benefit you know we don't want a masked world we don't think that it's that it promotes human flourishing it doesn't (laughs) that's that's right and so we just we don't want it and so that that I think is the underlying discussion. Hmm. You know, it's it's like I liken it to um, uh, Annie Hall, the movie. You know, where Alvin and Annie are talking on the balcony about. You know, they're talking supposedly about visual arts, but really they're they're actually talking about. Okay, where is this relationship going? You know, am I going to get in her pants and <laughs> that kind of hmm. stuff? So, so again, I think there's that underlying discussion, which is really what kind of a world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in just one giant hospital, um, you know, which is characterized by rule upon rule upon rule? For some reason, some people find that comforting. Yeah. 
And but then, those are the few, I think those are the people who, um, who adhere now, despite the mountain of evidence that they actually are inefficacious, right? There's so many, there's so much evidence, even the Bangladesh study, you know, they claimed that it proved that vaccine or that the masks work. And yet, if you actually read the data, the data showed, well, actually it was marginal at best and actually potentially negative. And yeah. this is what happens. But I mean, I think we have to kind of differentiate between the masses of people, those people who you see driving around in their cars wearing a mask, right? Who are just, I mean, I actually had an Uber driver who told me that she wore her mask, not because of anything about fear of disease, but because she thought she had a fat neck and it covered her neck. Mm, right. And, you know, they've become endemic in J Japanese society. Now I saw that something like 80% of the people say they're going to continue to wear them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's this, I think there was a much more subversive reason for governments pushing them so hard. And that is because they are a symbol of submission. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they are a symbol also of a muzzle, of muzzling the people. And I think that people go along with it and then do actually submit and are actually muzzled. And so you've got the people in the positions of power who know what they're doing, very well know what they're doing. And then you've got maybe your average doctor or scientist who just takes whatever CDC says at face value and then will argue those points. And I feel like those are kind of discrete groups from the average person who may be wearing one just because they feel more comfortable with it. They've gotten to the point where what you're saying, that they want to live in that world that they think is safe. Um, right. But I think but I think that they have been weaponized against us without any doubt. And I do mm -hmm. not believe for a second that that's an accident or a mistake. Um, you know, I'm fighting a um, a huge lawsuit. You know, we won. We took down the travel mask mandate April 18th of last year of 2022. We got the ruling from the district court, federal court in um, in Florida saying that. That was amazing. That was, yeah. oh boy, you, you could have heard me cheer from the <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was pretty exciting for all of us. Um, but my point is that CDC and the Department of Justice in the United States did not immediately appeal. And when they did appeal, it took a couple of days. And when they did, they said, well, first DOJ said, we'll wait and see what CDC wants to do. And, and then they said, oh, yeah, we're going to appeal. And then they didn't request any kind of expeditious procedure. They just, <laughs> so if that, if, if there were truly a public health emergency and there was truly um, something that masks could address, that is completely belied by their behavior. It doesn't make any sense if they really believe that masks did what they claimed they did mm -hmm. and that masks could play a role in this supposed public health health emergency it just doesn't add up. Their behavior does not not add up. And the other thing is interesting is that, um, you know, they claimed after the fact that they were using that the masks were a sanitation measure. I mean, it was just graspy at, at straws is all it was, the whole thing. And so I kind of... I have a hard time just accepting that it's just this mm. worldview. I think it's about something. I'm sorry. Obviously, I'm more conspiratorial, I guess. <laughs> Maybe yeah, just right. because I've I've been in health freedom for 20 years, so right. I'm more cynical and more skeptical. Right. And I've seen it play out over the decades. And I just do not believe that these people in positions of power have our best interests at heart very often. I just don't. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's certainly fair. I mean, I think we all you know, follow different points along the yeah. spectrum of, yeah. of that. Um, but yeah, no, that was great. That was great. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, and the fact that people cheered in midair, 
when they, they announced that court decision to people who were in midair oh, and I they cheered. And that, you know, I think I read an article that said, and that proved that, you know, people actually were happy about this. For a small moment, people realized that other people were also happy about this. They weren't yeah. alone. Yeah. The most important aspect of the whole thing was how much it inspired people to realize that they weren't alone. Yeah. And that they could stand up and they could push back and that there were things that we could do. And I think it was a critical moment in the whole um, sort of COVID timeline because, mm-hmm. of that, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, there still are some people, that, you know, I talk, I hear them talking online or I've talked to them who say, well, you know, even if it helps by 1%, they're, like it costs so little, why not do it? Even if it helps by a half a percent or a tenth of a percent. You know, there are people who think that way. And again, it boils down to if you think that this, um, you know, imperative to deal with this with this threat supersedes all other considerations. Well, you know, why not do it yeah. <laughs> again? Because life isn't worth living. I mean, it's like, so Completely. why just lock yourself in your bathroom and never leave then too? And what kind of a life is that? Well, absolutely. And that's that's what, what us, what we on side B thought from the start. I'm just saying that there are people who sincerely believe that. True. I mean, there was, I went to dinner on, um, what night was it? Last week, one night we went to dinner and the only person in the entire restaurant who had a mask on was our waitress. And she came up and I looked up to her and I like recoiled because she had this big black thing on. And I just thought, wow, you know, one, I can't relate, but two, it's, Mm -hmm. it's actually jarring. It's uncomfortable to look at someone who has a mask on. And I don't know how they've, you know, conditioned themselves to accept it. I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Yeah. Look, there are people um, who think that way. I just think that's lunacy, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. You know, yeah. I have a 20 year old. I mean, the last thing in the world I would ever want. I mean, literally, I I would, you know, lay down my life for him. There's nothing more important to me than my son. He's the only child I have. And he is, you know, um, he is the most important thing in the world to me. And I mean, I could lock him away because I don't want any harm to come from him, but what life would that be? I also think to myself, you know, there are people who say, oh, you have to, your child has to protect my child. Your child can't do this or can't come to school without a shot or can't come to school without a mask because my child is immunocompromised. And I think to myself, so if you have two children, do you hold the other one back? Exactly. Do you exactly. put the the healthy one, the one who's not somehow hampered? Do you put that one? Do you give them the same treatment and things? I mean, don't you want them to both live? I just, I just don't understand that, that the mentality. No, I completely agree. And yeah. that whole immunocompromised narrative, again, I think has been exploited. Um, I thought about this as well. And I'm pretty confident. I mean, I'm already at higher risk, supposedly for being older, but I know that if I had other risk factors, I mean, I know deep in my bones that I would never expect the world to stop for me. I would never expect young people, you know, to stay home or keep their distance or take this vaccine or that vaccine or whatever for me. You know, that I think that was one of the big dividers as well. Yeah. Me too, Gabrielle. Can I tell you, neither my mother, my father, my stepmother or stepfather participated in all these things. And they're Mm. in their 70s and 80s. Well, good for them. You know, and then, I mean, we were hugging them. We never did any of this garbage because Mm -hmm. what's the point in living? And the thing is, what's the benefit of giving my father a hug? 
versus the potential risk. You know, it's crazy. Well, exactly. exactly. So listen, I want to bring this back to the most important thing and the <laughs> reason we're here, which is your book, which I don't think I said the name of at the beginning. So what is your, the title of your book, which is being published by Brownstone Institute and where pe- can people find it and you? Yeah, it's called, oh, actually, I think I have some copies here. Oh, cool. Show us a copy oh, of it, please. I'll show you a copy. It's called Blind Sight is 2020. Fantastic title, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I've had lots of compliments about it. So it was published by Brownstone earlier this year. And um, um, it also has been published in Spanish. Um, A Spanish uh, Madrid publisher got in touch with me um, shortly after it came out, and they expressed an interest in publishing it in Spanish. And it was fine with my contract uh, with Brownstone that um, that's permitted. So it is now um, in Spanish. A ciegas en 2020. Okay. So where do people get it? Uh, so, um, well, you, it, you can get it on Amazon and either you can either order a hard copy or um, Kindle edition. And I think uh, Brownstone also plans to put out an audio version of the book. Uh, and people who don't like Amazon can also get it on Lulu. Can you buy um, it directly from Brownstone or no? No, I think right now um, it's still, you know, the way I said, um, I know that, you know, there are, there's a minority of people that don't like to um, order from Amazon. So that's why Brownstone set up the Lulu option as well. Okay. I try um, and avoid Amazon as much as possible. So it's called Lulu. I haven't even heard of this. I'm so yeah. excited. Yeah, Lulu. So yeah, you can just, you know, look it up on Lulu and it, it should come up. And, um, you know, from what I've heard, uh, it's doing quite well. And I've, I've received personal feedback from readers, which is always very heartwarming when people go to the trouble of emailing you. And um, there's one in Toronto even, and we started talking and we we're planning to get together for coffee. So that's just, that's the silver lining of all this when, and I'm sure you found the same is, you know, certain people fall away and then certain new people come into your life that you never would have met otherwise. You know, Jeffrey Tucker's one of them and, and yeah. the whole Brownstone crew and, and you and everyone. And, um, and all these people I met in QLIT in Toronto, certain people just come into your life yeah. that you never would have owned, known otherwise. A- yeah, in, in defiance of the lockdowns here in Idaho, in the summer of 2020, I held a big gathering. I had at least 50 people in my backyard. And these were people that I had not, most of them didn't know each other. We live in a, um, in a community that leans very far to the left. And right. you know, most people were fairly... Um, shall we say, bought into the mainstream narrative, but there were lots of people who were questioning and they came. I mean, they came because they wanted to see who else they could actually connect with and we created community. And then the following year, I did another one and we had over 150 people for that one. Wow. And um, it's it's so important because this is what life is about is connecting and and being together and sharing this human experience, you know? So Absolutely. And, and my- my hat is off to you, Gabrielle, because I'm not finished, but what I'm reading, I've read so far of the book is really fantastic. And I so appreciate you doing this and bringing together all of these incredible people to give their opinions and thoughts on this really critical issue that none of us wanted to have happen, but did happen to us in our lives. And I just have to believe that we were, um, born for this time and that we can uh, make the best out of it that we possibly can and use it as a, you know, a guide to how we may not want to behave in the future, you know? So thank you so much. I applaud you. It's been a a pleasure to have you on the show. And um, I I hope our viewers go and buy your book 
And um, let's talk again soon and hear how it's going. Well, thank you. And I want to say, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, you know, you should you should be writing a book too about this. I hope you're planning one. I have one in the works, but I don't know whether to do a book about this, like we've been discussing, or if I should be doing a book about the way forward, because I think that's kind of more important. And so I've kind of got two in my head I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, to reading them whenever they come out and however they come out. Yeah. And thanks thanks again for having me on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Mine too, Gabrielle. Thank you so much. 